Well, hello. My name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Welcome back to Crime of the Truest Kind, New England Crime Stories and Regional History. I talk about the people and the places and the things that happen here. I love New England. I love telling these stories about the people and the places and the things that happen here. And we get to the crime stories pretty quickly. Good news. I'm going to CrimeCon 2023. Yeah, I went for the first time last year, went to Vegas, and I kind of had a blast. So I'm going to do it again. Thanks to my technical advisor, PG. And now I just confirmed we're going to the True Crime Podcast Festival in Austin, Texas, in August. Pretty stoked to get to know more folks in the community and share the show with new fans and hopefully meet more of you. Thanks to new Wicked Cool patron Dom on Patreon. Support the show. Hit the link on crimeofthetruestkind.com. Thanks to supporters, as always, Sandy with an I, Patty in New Hampshire, Rebecca, my honorary producer, Lisa McColgan. I have some gifts on the way. Mm-hmm. Follow and subscribe. I love those five-star ratings and reviews. Keep them coming. Crime of the Truest Kind is everywhere. Follow at Crime of the Truest Kind. It has been a very eventful true crime week in New England. I don't revel in that fact. But there has been a lot going on. Let's hit some New England true crime headlines. The search for Anna Walsh continues the woman who's been missing from Cohasset, Massachusetts since January 1st. Anna Walsh, 39, is the mother of three young boys. She was scheduled to fly to D.C. where she works, but she did not arrive. She was last seen by a family member around 4 a.m. on January 1st. Authorities could not determine whether she got on a ride share, whether she made it to Logan Airport. She did not get on a plane. She did not arrive in D.C. She did not arrive at the townhouse that she normally stays in when she's at work in D.C. Her husband reported her missing on January 4th. Searches began at her home in Cohasset on the property at her home in Cohasset and ground searches around the area of Cohasset. Over the weekend, WCVB Channel 5 News helicopter saw that they were draining the swimming pool in their property. Stranger still, a fire broke out at a home previously owned by the Walsh family, And that, of course, raised a lot of eyebrows. We would soon learn from officials that it was not a serious fire, and it was just a coincidence. All eyes have been on her husband, Brian Walsh, who has been on house arrest. He is awaiting sentencing on selling two fake Andy Warhol paintings on the Internet. He had been cooperating with authorities who were searching for his wife. On Saturday, January 7th, The helicopter was flying over their property in Cohasset and saw them draining the swimming pool. On Sunday, January 8th, the husband of Anna Walsh, Brian Walsh, was arrested for misleading police. Blood and a broken knife was found in the home, and the husband bought $450 worth of cleaning materials on January 2nd. So yes, I know what you're thinking. It sounds very bad. And Anna Walsh is still missing, and she has three little boys at home. 
This is a developing story, moment by moment. Evidence linked to Anna Walsh was reportedly found at a transfer station in Peabody, Massachusetts. Meanwhile, a search continued in the North Shore town of Swampscott, Massachusetts, and a dumpster located at an apartment complex at that location. All items found are now subject to processing and testing, according to Fox 25 News. And there are the online searches. CNN reports that the husband made internet searches to include how to dispose and dismember a body. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. I will be following the story for sure. You can also ask to join the I Heart True Crime Facebook group that I've been dropping stories in. It is a very different story for this episode. It's about two mothers, one very young, very trusting, the other older, but clearly no wiser, who plotted and deceived. This is episode 38, Murdered for Her Baby, Darlene Haynes of Worcester, Massachusetts. I've talked about the city of Worcester. There was the three-part series on the Worcester Six, the Worcester Cold Storage and Warehouse Fire on December 3, 1999, that killed six firefighters. It was devastating for the city. I learned a lot about the city of Worcester and its people. And it's cities like Worcester that make you proud to be from New England. Worcester is a special place with special people, and they've gotten so much shit from Boston. That's a backhanded joke about the decades of rivalry in the music scene here. 508. Spelled Worcester, but don't say that. You will be made fun of mercilessly. Worcester or Worcester, both are acceptable. The woo to some warm town. I wish I could tell you that Worcestershire sauce came from Worcester. Well, it does, but Worcester, England. So it's real fancy. It's crusty, like a good New England town should be. They've been through it. It's a city of about 200,000. Metro West, Central Mass, dead center between Boston and Springfield. The heart of the Commonwealth. I read the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, and I learned of the passing of the longtime court reporter, Gary Murray, the longest tenured employee of the Telegram and Gazette, who passed away on May 31st, 2020, at the age of 69. He worked at the paper for 51 years, beginning in April of 1969. Something he was very proud of. He stopped reporting on March 16th. That adds up because he stopped tweeting right around then only because the courts were forced to close due to the coronavirus. He eventually decided to retire in mid-May of 2020 and passed away a few weeks later. You're a good man, Gary Murray. A court reporting soldier. Godspeed. It is a case that made international news with gory headlines like fetus snatcher and womb raider in the summer of 2009. The two neighbors, one in her early 20s, one in her mid-30s, both pregnant, both struggling, each seemed to lean in on the promise of a new baby that offered a glimmer of hope in their relatively ordinary existence. Both were mothers of multiple children, and not all of which they had in their care at the time. Both were on assistance, and neither had many job prospects. One was Darlene Louise Haynes, 
born in Worcester on August 24, 1985. She died in Worcester, according to public records, on July 27, 2009. That is the day she was found in her Worcester apartment. It was believed, though, she was attacked on July 23rd, and that is the day that her daughter would be born. I say born because I don't have a word to describe it. Snatched? Gruesomely taken from her mother? Not a lot is written about Darlene Haynes. Her family spoke of her friendliness and her trusting nature. She was a young woman with a great many challenges. She had extremely limited resources while navigating motherhood of three daughters. One girl, Christina, nearly two, was in her care. Two others, Jasmine and Lillian, who were four and three at the time of their mom's death, lived with Darlene's grandmother. Darlene had reportedly dropped Christina off with someone on that last day, on July 23rd, the last time she was seen alive. Darlene's aunt, Sandra Grandmason of Lowell, said Darlene had put off two visits with her older daughters, saying she was having trouble walking. She was eight months pregnant. Stuff hurts. Sometimes women experience pelvic pain, swelling. The physical demands of advanced pregnancy can do a number on you. But when Darlene didn't check in to reschedule with them, her family was concerned. That aunt told the Boston Herald that she last spoke with her niece two weeks before she was killed. Now, Darlene's grandmother, Joanne Haynes, said she got Darlene as a child when she was about six years old. It's not clear what happened with Darlene's mother, but she did not raise her. And Joanne Haynes, Darlene's grandmother, she was the relative who was caring for Darlene's older two girls, Jasmine and Lillian. Darlene didn't have it easy. She suffered abuse as a little girl. That's how she ended up with her grandmother. While she was very kind and loving and friendly, she didn't have the ability to recognize what I would call certain social cues. And she did not have the ability to sense danger. She was a loving mother, but she also had severe developmental delays as a result of that childhood abuse. By whom? isn't clear to me. Those delays would affect her ability to parent, and the Department of Children and Families was involved. Social worker Jessica Bader testified that she had made several visits to the home between April and June 2009, and that same aunt estimated that Darlene functioned at a 12- or a 13-year-old level. She struggled and wouldn't make it through high school, and holding a job would prove to be too difficult. I wasn't able to find any information on any kind of testing Darlene may have had or therapy that she had been offered. An uncle said that Darlene was a young woman who wanted to prove to others that she was capable of doing things on her own. Little is known about who fathered Darlene's older children. Nothing that I found in my research. But Darlene was with the father of her two youngest daughters up until a few weeks before she died. His name is Roberto Rodriguez, and he was only one of the men that she was having trouble with. They were living together in the second-floor apartment at 94 Southgate Street in Worcester until she took out a restraining order against him. Her complaint to police was on June 26th that Rodriguez had assaulted her. The restraining order was dated June 29th, where she alleged in court papers he had homicidal thoughts. Darlene had called her DCF social worker and told her about that order. That Rodriguez had been abusive, that he had thrown her into a glass table, ripped the phone cord from the wall to stop her from calling for help, 
grabbed her by the throat and slapped her in her face, and threatened to kill her grandmother if she tried to take custody of Christina. Rodriguez was the first to be looked at when Darlene was found and faced a great deal of scrutiny over the abuse allegations. Someone claimed to have seen him coming from a nearby cemetery, appearing dirty and disheveled the day after Darlene was killed. That same social worker testified that she met with Darlene a few weeks after her call about the restraining order, and she said she regretted reporting the assault. She was crying and told the social worker she just wanted to take it all back and felt awful about the situation she put herself in. Rodriguez was interviewed later and told police that Darlene left him 23 voice messages that day, asking to talk about something urgent. Rodriguez ignored all the calls. He told police he was done with the relationship and deleted 19 of the messages. The date was July 23, 2009, the day Darlene was murdered. Another man in Darlene's life, her landlord, William Thompson, was a source of stress due to a growing housing dispute. Not only would Thompson let himself into her apartment unannounced, she had leveled complaints about the condition of her apartments and the building. On July 21st, city records show she called the Worcester Department of Inspectional Services to complain about missing window safety locks, an unsafe front porch, missing smoke detectors throughout the building, and squirrels getting into the ceiling. Inspector Lee R. Hall visited the apartment building within 48 hours. He arrived at the house on Thursday, July 23rd. That would be the last day that Darlene would be alive. That inspector would issue eight violations against the landlord. For holes in unit walls, torn window screens, problems with the porch, light switches and doors, and missing trash receptacles. There was an interesting bit of news about this multifamily house that came later that I will get to. Stay with me. Thursday, July 23rd, 2009 could be a pretty unremarkable day, but not for a 35-year-old Worcester woman named Julie Corey. It was the day she put her gruesome plan into action. Julie Corey, who has sometimes gone by the name Julie Fernandez, was an acquaintance and former neighbor of Darlene Haynes. She was telling people she too was pregnant. The two women knew one another through their boyfriends, Roberta Rodriguez and Alex Dion. The women weren't friends, despite a lot of initial reporting saying they were, and some really terribly produced true crime shows saying they were roommates and dear friends, sharing their pregnancy journeys. That was all bullshit. On July 23rd, Julie Corey gave Darlene a ride to the liquor store where it is believed they got some kind of alcohol, maybe wine coolers. If it were modern day, though, they'd be getting hard seltzer. Tell me I'm wrong. Later that night, Corey called her boyfriend, who believed she was pregnant, and told him her water had broken and that she was going into labor and she would drive herself to the hospital. Holy shit, that's a red flag. Throughout a series of telephone calls that night, Julie Corey's boyfriend, Alex Dion, would learn that he is the father of a brand new baby girl. That is some super turnaround time. Labor, delivery, and recovery take a lot longer than the time it takes to get a Domino's delivered. Under 30 minutes or it's free. Absurd. In a matter of hours, Corey returned home with a tiny baby. A premature, little baby girl that wasn't due for at least another month. 
Her behavior immediately following this superhuman birth set off a chain reaction of doubt among those around her, beginning with a smaller than normal newborn-sized baby that didn't look clean. She raised more suspicion by being a bit cavalier with the details. Relatives of the boyfriend say they brought the baby to a family gathering, a newborn that's less than 48 hours old. No one does that. Family members met the baby and asked Corey about the birth. She was in labor for 20 minutes, returned home five hours later. At one point, she blamed the care of the hospital she was in for why she checked herself out and came home. She said she delivered sometime Thursday night into Friday morning at a Massachusetts hospital, which she did not identify. Other reports say a Framingham hospital. I'm sure Framingham has a hospital, none of which I looked up because it's all bullshit. She didn't have the baby. Some people in her orbit didn't even know she was pregnant. Other people spoke of her talking about a scheduled C-section that Friday the 24th. All of this would start to add up once the news of Darlene Haynes hit the media. Ask any new parent about their new baby. You get the full name, the length, the weight, how long it took to push, how many centimeters they were dilated and when. All Corey had was a shrug and a weak story and a dirty baby. So what happened? On the last day that Darlene was seen by anyone, she'd been with Julie Corey. I'd be willing to bet that Julie was talking to Darlene about the impending birth of her own fake baby, gaining her trust, endearing herself to this young woman who was pretty much on her own. That wasn't a difficult thing to do with Darlene. She was a person who liked to be friendly. She liked to have friends. And I am sure enjoyed this bonding over motherhood. She had difficulties with parenting, but she loved her kids. Court records tell us this. Julie Corey and Darlene Haynes may have spent hours together before the murder took place. Surveillance footage from a liquor store on Canterbury Street, not far from Darlene's apartment, shows a Ford Escort driven by Corey and known to be owned by her boyfriend, pull up. Darlene gets out of the car, walks inside, and buys something. Now, this surprised more than a few people, including the boyfriend, Alex Dion, who testified in court that it was very odd for Corey to be going anywhere with Darlene. He said they weren't friends. Corey's relationship with that boyfriend was pretty stormy. They'd broken up, and then she told him she was pregnant. There are other factors in pulling off this pregnancy caper, and I will get to that. Here is what I found out about Julie Corey. She had five of her own children, and only one of those children she had partial custody of. She had undergone a tubal ligation, also known as getting her tubes tied. But the surgery reportedly failed, and she maintained the ability to get pregnant. This was part of Alex Dion's testimony. Also, please tell us who that doctor is so no one will ever go to them. And when we hear of fetal abduction, we often think it's because someone cannot have their own children. And that is not what happened here. Medical records showed at trial revealed that Julie Corey had been pregnant eight times. And was she ever really pregnant that final time? The answer is yes. Before Julie Corey planned the murder and mutilation of Darlene Haynes, She was pregnant, and she reportedly miscarried that baby in April of 2009. 
A court document said that Corey was 30 weeks pregnant, or seven and a half months. That is far along into a pregnancy, and I believe it was traumatizing to her to experience. Medical records from that time indicate Corey visited UMass Memorial Medical Center complaining of pain. Now, what happens here? Gets bananas. Buckle up. In April, she told her boyfriend's family that she was four months pregnant. But then she said she was eight months pregnant during the shower they threw for her in May. The baby was originally due in mid-June, but Corey told the family she was going to deliver by cesarean section in late July. She also told her boyfriend she didn't want him to go to any doctor's visits after a test indicated the baby might have developmental problems. That boyfriend, Alex Dion, was prepared to go to the hospital July 24th to be with her for the birth. But she pulled that move the night before, saying her water had broken. She went to some rando hospital, had a baby in 20 minutes, and signed herself out a few hours later. She's the Domino's Pizza of expectant mothers. By the time they threw that baby shower for her in May, she was no longer pregnant and only pretending to be. She keeps up the ruse. There are many photos from that day used at trial, showing Corey and Dion opening baby gifts and playfully feeding each other cake. She kept pushing the due date out. She was getting dangerously close to timing out and not having a baby to show for her months-long acting job. Another reason for the ruse, Julie Corey's benefits were set to expire unless she had proof she had given birth. Among documents that police found in Alex Dion's Ford Escort were Massachusetts Women, Infants, and Children's Nutritional Program documents, commonly known as WIC. WIC, as many of you know, is a service to help mothers with advice on nutrition and funds for healthy food for breastfeeding women, new moms, and children under five years old. Corey's WIC card had an expiration date of one week after Darlene was killed. She needed a new baby, and she needed a new baby fast. She was running out the clock. A letter from the state instructed Corey to attend an upcoming appointment and to bring her newborn's birth certificate, or she would risk losing her benefits. This is what prosecutors believe happened to Darlene Haynes. On Thursday, July 23, 2009, Julie Corey somehow connected with Darlene Haynes. They went to the store and ended up back at Darlene's apartment. Sometime before 11.30 p.m., Julie Corey attacked Darlene, hitting her in the back of the head repeatedly, strangling her with a lamp cord, and then, likely before she was dead, made a nine-inch cut into her abdomen and uterus and took the baby out. I can only hope that Darlene was unconscious by this time. Crime scene photos that were shown during the trial were graphic and depicted a blood-soaked mattress and how Darlene was found wrapped in a comforter and stuffed into the bedroom closet. I cannot fathom the actions that this woman took to mutilate the pregnant belly of an almost two-term expectant mother. It is unreal. I, I simply don't understand how you do that. Like, I don't have the capacity to understand the anatomy of it or 
the brutality of it. It was determined that Corey made 12 calls using Darlene's phone in the hours after she killed her. Her boyfriend believed she was out visiting a friend. Well, yes, visiting, but they weren't friends. Corey called him at 11.30 p.m. to say her water had broken. She made 11 more calls to him that night, detailing what was happening at the hospital, saying both she and the baby weren't treated well by the nurses. I know I'm not the only one to find it very odd that an expectant father didn't try to find out where his baby was being born. What in the world did she tell him? No worries. I'll be quick. BRB. Corey used this poor care scenario to cover her tracks and be the reason she left the hospital with the baby so early. Now, I don't know the protocol for the length of time a woman must stay in the hospital after delivering a baby, but I'm willing to bet it's more than five hours. So she left the hospital on that Friday, the same day, remember, that she had told some of her friends she had scheduled a C-section. By that weekend, Corey was the doting new mom, showing that very tiny baby off at her home in Worcester. And that baby girl that was just so traumatically and gruesomely taken from her mother appeared healthy. There are a couple of instances in the reporting where I found that there was a name that she had given the baby. Elda Nevia or Alida Nevia. That's all I was able to piece together. While fetal abduction is a rare crime, there have been more events of it in the news, and we are no less shocked when it does happen. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children recorded 18 cases of fetal abductions in the United States between 1983 and 2015, which represents 6% of the recorded 302 cases of infant abduction. In fetal abductions where babies were taken from the mother's womb, The perpetrator is almost always a woman who had difficulty having a baby of her own or lost a baby. In the cases I read about, it seemed the womb raider, that is such a crude term, built a relationship with the expectant mother based on deception. They will fake a friendship, try to earn their trust, all while planning how they will kill them and take their baby. And we are talking about something very, very serious, like cutting into the stomach and uterus of a near-term mother. Now, of course, this is the most extreme kind of infant abduction. A woman in the state of mind is far more likely to steal a newborn baby from a hospital or from a new mother in her home or in public. This is according to Kathy Nahirney, Senior Analyst of Infant Abduction for the Washington-based National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But on occasion... A woman in the state of mind does resort to this gruesome and horrific act of violence. The stories I have read about include women becoming victims of fetal abduction through social media, posting their sonogram photos, talking about when their baby is due. Others become victims from those lurking in online marketplaces. They buy and sell baby items. They befriend and try to familiarize themselves. They will need a safe location to carry out their gruesome business on this expectant mother. Those women who have something called factitious disorder by proxy, simulating fetal growth restriction, can end up as fetal abductors. Some can have an overwhelming need for the attention a pregnancy brings. By pretending they are pregnant and believing so, 
Some go as far as actually acting out the fantasy and presenting to a hospital after the fetal abduction, claiming that they have had a miscarriage. Fetal abductions are shocking, absolutely. And it is difficult to understand why and how a woman can carry this out. I don't have specific data on fetal abductors, but they are primarily female-on-female crimes. As medical facilities have changed their procedures in terms of protecting against infant kidnapping, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children now sees most infant abductions occur in communities, with some taken by violent force. Although rare, there has been an uptick in what they call C-section abductions which account for the increase in the mortality rate. Few of the mothers survive. Surprisingly, many of the babies survive. What could drive a person to do such a savage thing? Because they are still rare events, little research does exist to answer that question. But when they do occur, there tend to be striking similarities between events and the women who carry them out. Darlene was never reported missing. Her family was concerned, but did not think something was seriously wrong. She was last seen on that Thursday, and she was found on Monday, when residents of the apartments at 94 Southgate Street, where Darlene lived, were calling the building's landlord to complain about a strong odor coming from her second-floor apartment. Once inside, it didn't take long to make the discovery. Because she was there for four days in July heat, the fumes inside were overwhelming. Both that landlord, William Thompson, who found the body, and the emergency responders were forced to seek fresh air before they could fully investigate the site. One crime scene investigator said the police asked the Worcester Fire Department for industrial fans to clear out all of the flies. Darlene's body was found wrapped in a comforter and stuck in her bedroom closet. She was in such bad condition of advanced decomposition, it was difficult for police to know even what they were dealing with. Investigators did not yet know that their departed was pregnant and that the baby was missing. An autopsy that Tuesday confirmed it was Darlene. That she had been murdered, suffered severe head trauma, was strangled, and that her baby was missing, brutally cut from her womb with a nine-inch gash. Thankfully, her little baby Christina was not in the apartment for any of what her mother experienced. The Worcester Telegram and Gazette reported she had dropped her daughter off at her boyfriend's house on her last day alive. Immediately upon learning there was a missing baby, the search for the infant began. Julie Corey was soaking up the new mother attention, taking her barely born baby to barbecues to show her off. Many of these people she was showing the baby off to alerted Worcester detectives about her implausible stories after they learned that a pregnant woman had been murdered and her baby was stolen. Authorities worried that the baby didn't survive given the state of Darlene's body when she was found. It was so brutal, so gruesome, and so cruel Authorities didn't think the baby would survive such a traumatic entry into the world. When Julie Corey learned that Darlene had been found, she had a jam out of Massachusetts. They headed north to New Hampshire, 
where her parents lived. Corey, her boyfriend, who all along believed she was pregnant with his baby, and the infant ended up at a shelter in Plymouth, New Hampshire. It took no time at all for people to share the bizarreness of her story. As the murder investigation unfolded, detectives were led to Corey, whose behavior had tipped off people in that shelter. A woman there was concerned enough to take a photo of the baby, and that angered Julie Corey. Friends and family who had spent time with Corey, her boyfriend, and the baby over the weekend had their very own real concerns and said as much. Relatives of boyfriend Alex Dion told the Worcester Telegram and Gazette that they met the baby at a gathering that Saturday, and nothing about it seemed right at all. First, the baby would be all of one day old. They spoke of how Corey described the birth. She had been in labor for 20 minutes and was back home a few hours later. Corey would ask who the baby looked like. One woman gave it to her straight, that the baby didn't resemble any of them. Corey pretended to nurse the baby under a blanket, but had a bottle of formula nearby. The baby's umbilical cord was haphazardly tied with a ribbon. It was obviously not cut by a doctor. Or properly clamped, like all newborns anyone has ever seen since the beginning of time seeing newborns. And many people mentioned the appearance of the baby's skin. They saw that it was spotted with dried blood, like she'd never even bathed her. Well, the stories were beginning to stack up. These stories from family members, plus the stories of various friends added, were setting up a very disturbing tale. Corey told everyone she'd gone into labor and given birth to a baby girl. A friend reported that she spoke of a scheduled C-section. The next day, Corey began showing off a baby. She told neighbors she had been visiting friends in Marlboro the previous day. Then her water broke, and she gave birth at what she called Framingham Hospital. But one theme was a constant among every single person who had something to say about an interaction with Julie Corey. It was how terrifyingly small this infant was. But many of those same people tried to suspend their disbelief because Corey seemed so happy to have the baby. One neighbor shared an interaction with Julie Corey. She said that the baby sounded congested and suggested that she bring her to the hospital for a checkup. Julie Corey absolutely refused. Once news broke that Darlene Haynes was found murdered in her apartment and her unborn baby was missing, Julie Corey's bizarre behavior started to make sense to a lot more people. Many of those people went to police with their own experiences. And Julie Corey would be arrested in New Hampshire on Wednesday, July 28th, the day after Darlene's autopsy showed her baby was taken from her. Julie Corey would be held on $2 million cash bail and would face kidnapping charges in Worcester. Corey was not charged with the murder of Darlene Haynes. Not at first. The first question that they needed to answer was, how did she get Darlene's baby? They took the baby to be examined by a doctor, and she was in surprisingly good health. Corey continued to insist that she had given birth, and that was her baby. She was eventually examined, 
and it was clear she had not given birth and that was not her baby. DNA tests confirmed within days whose baby she was. By then, the Department of Children and Families had taken custody of the newborn, known then only as baby Jane Doe. At the very same time, homicide detectives were combing over Darlene's apartment, sorting through what they may learn about her last days. They were gathering evidence, taking photos of the very graphic scene that was left behind. A bottle, they would discover, would play a key role in the case. It was the physical evidence placing Julie Corey in the apartment. What would take her charges from kidnapping to first-degree murder? Watermelon-flavored Smirnoff ice. Photos shown during the trial show the bottle that had Corey's fingerprint on the neck. The bottle was on a bureau in the bedroom next to a bed with a blood-soaked mattress, just feet from the closet where Darlene was found wrapped in a comforter. Once they had this connection, Julie Corey would be charged with first-degree murder in the beating, strangulation, and mutilation death of Darlene Haynes. While the prosecution prepared their case, the defense got to work blaming everybody else for the murder. There were a number of things they raised as part of their case. People were seen entering and exiting Darlene's apartment after she was killed. Now, whether they knew there was a dead woman in the closet, we will never find out. One neighbor testified to seeing a man, who was a neighbor in the apartment house, come out of Darlene's apartment with a fish tank. He dumped the water and he left. That man told the neighbor he had been given permission to take the fish tank. But by who? We don't know. And there was the one-time roommate of Darlene and Roberta Rodriguez, William Davio, who rented a room shortly before the murder. A neighbor claimed to have seen Davio outside the apartment at 94 Southgate Street with both women smoking cigarettes just hours before Darlene was murdered. His videotaped interview would be included at trial, where he denied being back at the apartment after moving out on July 5, 2009, to detox from heroin. While the defense tried to put him at the scene of the murder, he testified he spent two weeks at the Catholic Worker House in Worcester and never returned to the apartment building after he moved out. William Davio died on August 21, 2010 at 49 years old, a year after Darlene's murder and long before the case would go to trial. In the days between when Darlene was killed and before her body was found, people were reportedly seen on the back porch of the apartment smoking, and another man was said to have climbed into the apartment's window. This added to the defense's claim that the police didn't do a thorough investigation into her murder, and Darlene's boyfriend, Roberto Rodriguez, wasn't looked at with enough scrutiny, given his history with violence against Darlene and a previous girlfriend, who both had taken out restraining orders against him. They tried to implicate him in the bogus birth, saying calls to Corey's boyfriend in the hours after the killing could have been coming from Rodriguez as part of a conspiracy. Remember, Corey had Darlene's phone and made a number of calls with it, but it was in Rodriguez's name. One theory they tried to pass off was that Alex Dion and Roberto Rodriguez were conspiring together. Dion denied the very suggestion and had always believed the baby she claimed to be carrying was his. Darlene Haynes was murdered on Thursday, July 23, 2009. 
Julie Corey's trial began years later, on Monday, January 27, 2014. It lasted for 10 days. DNA evidence and a fingerprint on a liquor bottle tied Julie Corey to the murder scene. The baby she had in her possession belonged to a woman that she left murdered and mutilated and her insides coming out. Worcester County District Attorney Joseph Early Jr., who is still the DA, by the way, he said that Darlene's murder is probably the most horrific case that his office had ever seen. She was murdered for her baby. Darlene's baby daughter was taken from her in a very traumatic and haunting way. Sheila Marie is said to be the name Darlene chose for her new baby. What her family called her, I am not sure. But that little girl is 13 years old now. What do you tell her about how she came into the world? That is something she will need to work through. Her biological father, Roberto Rodriguez, was given full custody. He married a woman named Anna, the same woman he applied for a marriage license with the day Darlene was found. I read that that little baby, Christina, was in foster care. The two older girls, Jasmine and Lillian, live with Darlene's grandmother. They are well into their teens, too, and they know what happened to their mom. Sadder still, Darlene's family never met the baby girl born that July day. Four sisters who share the same mother haven't been together. I hope one day that changes for them. That apartment house Darlene was killed in was eventually foreclosed on and fell into disrepair. The city tore it down, and it was replaced with a playground. Darlene's two oldest girls made a small memorial for her there on the 10th anniversary of her death in 2019. Someone stole their roses. Such a lack of compassion. Those girls experienced so much loss. In April of 2022, almost 13 years after the murder, we learned that Julie Corey was seeking a new trial on the grounds of mental impairment. She suggested that her behavior was due to postpartum depression. You may recall that her team went after the investigation as shoddy and picked the third-party culprit defense. The finger-pointing of everyone and their brother. I'll close with this line. There were challenges with the mental health defense, which would have required participation from Corey, who did not testify during the trial. And then it could have potentially opened the door to a couple of other crimes the government is unaware of. Records show that Worcester Superior Court Judge Janet Kenton Walker denied the motion for a new trial and upheld her first-degree murder conviction on June 16, 2022. We always get a little bit of truth in the lie. Remember how Julie Corey said she gave birth at some hospital in Framingham? Funny thing is, she's in Framingham now. The Massachusetts Department of Correction, MCI Framingham, where she is serving a life sentence for first-degree murder. My hope is that Darlene's four little girls, who are now closer to four adult women, get to meet and spend time with one another. I was so sad to learn that they didn't grow up all together. Thank you for listening. This is Crime of the Truest Kind, New England Crime Stories, online, crimeofthetruestkind.com. 
Everything about the show is there. Support the show on Patreon. Four tiers. Give the dog a bone. That's my silly name for the tip jar. The dogs will appreciate it. Follow the show at Crime of the Truest Kind, particularly the Instagram feed, where I will share some of Worcester's unsolved cases this week. I will continue on every show to talk about the cases of the missing and unsolved around New England. There are a number of New England stories I am watching, including right now, Anna Walsh, the woman who has been missing from her home in Cohasset, Massachusetts, since New Year's Day. There's a lot of fast-moving information in that case. I hold out hope, always, that she will be found safe. Send me your show ideas. I love them. Crime of the truest kind at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Let's do a live stream. The dogs say hi. And I mean it when I say it. Lock your goddamn doors. Hold up. 